afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Vitals, where we explore the most pressing topics in healthcare and data. Today, we're getting a pulse on how top healthcare organizations can use risk adjustment to close gaps in care, reduce costs, and ultimately achieve better health outcomes for patients and populations. We're also going to be talking specifically with Beth Israel Leahy Health Performance Network about how they tested new risk adjustment tactics with a small pilot program that's now expanding. Joining us are Anna Basovich, VP of Enterprise Partnerships at Arcadia, Victoria Smith, Director of Process Improvement and Design at Beth Israel Leahy Health Performance Network, and Maria Mann, our very own Clinical Product Manager here at Arcadia. And with that, uh, my spiel is over. I'm gonna hand it over to Anna to get the conversation started. So Anna, welcome and thank you for being here. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate you getting us kicked off and let's dig in. So we're talking about risk adjustment today. And we talk a lot about risk adjustment and condition management, and that makes sense because according to the CDC, six in 10 American adults have at least one chronic condition and four in 10 have two or more. I would love to get our panelists started with talking a little bit about how risk adjustment drives population health outcomes and then dig right into why it was a priority for Beth Israel Leahy Performance Network. So I'll, I'll start off, Anna. So taking care of six people is costly. And if not managed correctly, either the provider or the payer side, um, someone gets the short end of the stick, right? So risk adjustment was created to kind of um, level the playing field, um, for both sides while focusing on the quality of care. For the provider, they wanna take care of the sick patients um, naturally, that's what they do, but they're also required to meet uh, quality and cost initiatives, and they don't wanna look like they're make, not getting their patients better and costing, um, and it's costing a lot. Mm -hmm. So risk adjust, adjustment helps balance that out for them and then on the payer side, because they do want to cover these, these people with the cost burden, it helps give them a little incentive to actually cover these people so it's not like they're losing money while covering the people. And then for the patients, of course, they need to be covered. And it was hard, it is hard to get coverage when you're a sick, when you have a, um, a heavy disease burden. So risk adjustment helped was created to help balance that out and kind of provide a win-win-win um, for patient, uh, for patient, payer, and uh, provider. So I'm curious to find out from um, from Victoria how they did that at um, at the issue of Leahy. Yeah, thanks, Maria. So in short, we wanted to ensure essentially what Maria was mentioning, and that we appropriately capture the acuity of our patients. Through a pilot program we launched back in 2021, it was very clear and evident that there need to be more training, education, and focus in order to accurately reflect the health status of our patients and get those attributed appropriately. So really that's why we had a particular focus in this area in uh, expansion of those efforts after that time. So Victoria, you you called out that this is an area that requires focus and you're spot on because it's easy to think that if patients get seen as they would normally seen and providers do what they normally do, you would end up with a full clean slate of documentation, but we know that that's not the case. I'd love to hear a bit from you around what the challenges here were and why, why you needed more focus, training, et cetera, around this. Um, and generally learn about the program that you implemented and how you approached it. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Anna. So a couple of things. One, I think from a provider perspective, as Maria touched on this a little bit too, right, they want to see the patient. And so a lot of the documentation requirements and improvements that are needed in that space do require a different type of training to make sure that they're aware truly of what needs to happen in these cases and what that looks like. And so making sure that it's delivered in a way that makes the most sense and bringing in clinical um, impacts wherever possible, I think is 
is one approach that we have. I know for designing the program, we definitely needed appropriate engagement. I think you need that across the board. Uh, and we had to take into account several different applications, the vast network uh, in different areas in our network that may have limitations that others may, may not. So I think from a training standpoint, there's a couple different ways to, to, to that specific point in your question is for training, we like to focus on both an application side and then a provider side. So from an application side, we target those trainings towards either providers when they're at the point of care, if they're a solution that comes from that degree, but we also do focus on um, application training for, for staff, um, whether that's a provider organization or a specific risk unit to make sure that they're aware of how to help the care team to, to drive some of these complexities in the workflow or requirements in the workflow that need to also get done. I think um, the training for providers um, can be a little touchy. <laughs> providers get, you know, 15 to 20 minutes per visit and you have to provide, you have to engage them to understand why they are documenting things um, that they, that are already documented from, in, but in a previous year. And um, so I think that explaining to them and how it's about the quality of care and yes, the patient may have had an amputation last year or had an amputation documented last year and they don't understand why they need to document it this year, but we need to show that this amputation was assessed, that you looked at it, it didn't get worse, there was no infection. So all these things, um, when it comes to training, you, um, it's important to, for the providers to understand that things can progress and things can actually get better. You can you can progress from CKD. You can go you know hit high hit lower higher stages, or you can revert. You can no longer be morbidly morbidly obese. All those things are pertinent and need to be captured. But because documentation um, in any kind of way is not taught in medical school, it is up to us to actually you know gear providers into why they're doing this and the complete picture is always important it's not just about risk adjustment of course it's about complete capture of conditions um and if it's all there then it's it's the quality of care is improved It's a great point, Maria, because at the end of the day, I think it's really easy to to brush off that concept of comprehensive documentation as something that insurance companies need or something CMS needs or something that needs to make somebody else money. But at the end of the day, it's also about having that comprehensive medical record and ensuring that if the primary care physician can't be in the day that the patient's being seen, if the patient shows up in the ER, in the ER they show up at the specialist, everyone seeing that patient has the right understanding of their context and can provide the most appropriate care. So one of the things that that we're hearing makes this challenging, and I think most of us have seen, is the number of moving parts. It's the fact that it's training, it's workflows, it's a lot of different teams working together to serve up the right information to the provider at the point of care where they can be informed and they can have the bandwidth and space and time to really assess it adequately and ensure that it gets documented. I'd love to hear a little bit, Victoria, around the way that you and the organization approached rolling this out, because I think you did something that a lot of organizations think about and can learn a lot from in terms of starting with a pilot, and then how you worked through understanding how to scale what you did with a smaller group of practices across so much of your organization. Yeah, thanks, Anna. So, so it is just that we started with the pilot program for a proof of concept, and then essentially we're able to gather lessons learned from that and expand accordingly. One of the largest things we draw on or have drawn on for this is the planning stages and breaking it down into digestible pieces. So especially having a complex topic and then having a complex network uh, can pose some challenges. So we're able to look through the data and target specific sites or specific areas that we needed to focus on, whether it was outreach or specific conditions or specific practices. And we were able to hone in on each to see what that impact would be. 
And when we launch some of these at the micro level, so when you start with the pilots and if you do what we were, what we did was when we started with some of these practices, we learned a lot more about potential barriers or issues really at that front line, really within those respective workflows that we could address accordingly. That otherwise, looking at it from a macro view, we may not have um, been able to uncover. And the other area to look at or that we like to look at is the other teams that might have similar processes and wherever it makes sense to collaborate and partner on those topics. So essentially, if our quality team has a specific workflow or has a specific report that they're sending out, does it make sense to also link um, information that we need to get out um, in those same reports? And so we can try to streamline and have consistent messaging and efficient processes across the board. Yeah, I think it's important that to, and when you want to set up a program that by the time you're ready to set up your program, you kind of know what the what is, like what risk model do you want to cover and the why. Why are you going to roll out a risk model? I think those two um, you usually have answered, you know, very quickly. The who and the when and the how are the ones that I think get a little more complicated because the who you're talking about, what personas are going to have a direct or indirect impact um, or involvement in the program? Are you going to have front office staff involved? Are you going to have coders involved? If you have coders, where are they going to be? Are they going to be system? Are they going to be practice, et cetera? Same with the CDI team. If you have a CDI team, you know, what, where are they going to, are they going to, who, who are going to be involved in your CDI team? Nurses, coders, who else? So you need to figure out the who. The when is, what type of workflow are you going to do? Are you going to do a prospective workflow, which includes pre-visit planning? Like, are you going to review the chart the, as soon as the, the schedule um, is populated? Or are you going to have a concurrent workflow, which most people don't have um, on there, you know, immediately just or on its own? Um, usually there's some component of prospective or retrospective with concurrent. Or are you going to have a retrospective program, which is, you know, things that are done after the patient is gone. Um, I think that you can have a combination of all three. There's not one that's correct. It's just one that you need to decide works for you. All three may be, may be what works for you. Um, I've actually seen programs that have had been very successful with just either a prospective workflow or a retrospective workflow, and they, they're both, both very successful. The how is what tools are you going to use <laughs> to deliver this information to and from the provider? Um, so you're going to you need to decide. You know, do you have tools that are going to um, make this? You have to have tools that are going to make this process is the least cumbersome as possible. It's all about efficiency um, and effectiveness at this point. So the goal is still to offer the best quality of care to the patients, um, so that the documentation documentation process and risk capture process um, is not adding, you know, extra time to the provider's visit. Um, so you need to have tools that are going to be easy to use, have a, a, a good um, a user-friendly interface um, that keep the, the staff engaged and, not, and they don't disrupt the workflow, right? Workflow tools are very important. And you obviously want to have a tool that's going to give you metrics. Perfor key, performance me key performance metrics are very important to um, measure the success of your program. You want to make sure you get data elements that are very high level, um, and you want probably going to want data elements that are granular, granular as well. Um, so you need a program or some kind of tool that's going to support all of that. So those are just kind of, if you're even thinking about it, those are the things that you need to start um, thinking about when you're going to um, start a risk program. Yeah, Maria, I think those are all great points, and I would hone in a little bit on a couple of them. So on the WHO specifically, as you had mentioned, there's a variety of different stakeholders, and we especially did have you know members from executive leadership to the provider level to the practice teams and billing, compliance, coding, and, and reporting in what we do. Um, and we, 
want to always ensure that when we are in our planning phases that we do take into account, you know, who does this impact, what workflows uh, need to be addressed, uh, you know, also involving IT when it comes to that, that how piece and what impacts are there, what considerations do we need to have? And so I think that that's very imperative to getting that successful buy-in and support that you really need for a success, successful launch. And I also think the what in regards to depending upon the what in, in what you have described of what are you focusing on right. helps to understand where the program also aligns or intertwines with other processes and what you have to look at there in order to be mindful to support those successful and, and drive those successful outcomes. And I'll, I'll give an example of in our um, concurrent CDI program that we have right now, we do have a provider champion identified at each practice, which is very important um, for that piece of being able to consistently have the engagement we need at that level uh, in being able to support the program in that way. We do also have other programs aside from um, the concurrent CDI program that do look, of course, to continue to adopt those similar practices of integration and collaboration wherever possible. Although I think your what very clearly described that of depending upon your what depends upon your stakeholders. So thinking through each one of those, I think is really, really great. Yeah, and the who, like you said, when physician champion, that is so essential. Like the success of your program um, can depend on having a strong physician champion. Um, they are, their role as kind of the, the go-between or the translator or just the person that has your programs back <laughs> for other providers is essential um, mm -hmm. to the success of the program. So that needs to be someone that is sought out early on um, sought out and identified early on uh, in the process of trying to design a program. It's a great point, Marie, and it kind of gets at the fact that when we when we think about training for risk adjustment, we're not we're not really training how to document. You know, that's 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 the tip of the iceberg. At the end of the day, a lot of what we're doing is we're driving the change management on why does this matter, and we know from decades of training organizations on all kinds of similar topics that that's half the battle and that in a lot in a lot of cases you got to hear that message from from a lot of different points of view we know you know we i know having done this that the technology vendor isn't going to be the one winning over hearts and minds um telling providers that they need to do something extra as part of their day-to-day -day and squeeze something else into a 15 or 20 minute visit right that's got to be something that that's coming from their leadership and it's something where you know where i think we often see the pilot model be so helpful because it creates um peers who've done this before uh it creates providers and practice staff and others who can say you know yeah this wasn't something that i was necessarily psyched about from day one here's how I approached it, here are the challenges I faced, and here's what I liked about the outcome. Yeah, and, and to add to that, I think one of the other pieces is finding out which processes or which items are intertwined or could be intertwined or are similar, and then being able to align those in order to get um, an additional perspective to meet them where they're at on how can we intertwine this or does it make sense to intertwine to make it more impactful from the view that they're seeing in regards to what's required of them. Victoria, what were some of the programs where you found some of those opportunities and synergies to, to really have risk adjustment piggyback on those rather than having to create something from scratch? Yeah, so I think there's a couple areas. So one, um, as I had mentioned, I, we do link with our quality team um, as mm -hmm. well in some aspects in order to collaborate wherever needed there. So right now we're trying to work on developing some additional pre-visit models um, and what that might look like when we loop risk into the fold um, and, and not just have the quality the solely focus. The other area is reporting. So we do utilize, um, we have a quality and risk registry. We also have quality gap reports and really trying to integrate that data where we're able to. And then the other, of course, has to do with billing, right? Um, of 
all of the diagnoses get sent out on a claim um, and all of services also get sent out on a claim. So really working with billing teams, uh, encoding teams in that same aspect to see what opportunities lie in that and where can we align and integrate um, where we need to. Mm -hmm. How are your coding teams set up? Do you have like a system co coding team or do you have practice um, based coding teams? How are your coding teams set up? So it's a little bit different um, across the network in regards to some specific risk unit and or provider organizations do you have uh, coders on staff we also um, have coding teams throughout the network so it's a little bit um, complex in regards to mm -hmm. where that lies and and how that's how that makeup um, is really established we do have a cdi focus uh, at our network level and so we we do align with that as well and then we, depending upon the program depends upon who we partner with and, and where we go in regards to the actual structure of the program mm -hmm. and i'll look back real quick though to maria you had um brought up previously kind of the measuring and uh, KPIs and what we might look at there. So I know from our perspective, we do, as as you had outlined, right, of you have some high-level metrics and then you also have some um, mid-levels and, you know, for uh, level ones, level twos, level threes, if you will. And we do look at all, all different types of things of, you know, provider engagement. So how are they engaging with the program? Are they responding if we're sending queries, things to that degree? Also, we look at the risk score impacts and how is our risk score, how's our recapture rate, what that looks like, how's our patient activation and our patients, you know, coming in the door. So we did develop a specific monitoring guide uh, to be mindful of that impact and to continually assess uh, where, where those lie. And we do also have uh, initial sessions for one of our particular programs, we do have initial sessions with providers post one to two months go live, where we allow for an open forum for feedback and really orient them to some additional data metrics around the program. And we include additional provider feedback loops in other areas across the network. And we've been really trying to focus on that to make sure that we do understand um, additional provider feedback for perhaps not the providers that join the med medical director meetings or join the you know risk unit committees or things to that degree, but really folks um, you know, hearing from all all providers across the network. So we've been trying to integrate those as well. But I think that KPI point I didn't want to resurface because it was very um, important and it's always important to be mindful of the impact that it may or may not be making and if that's really meeting your goal. Mm -hmm. The um, We all know the competitive nature of the providers. Do you present these like um, to everyone? So to provide like in an anonymized way so they can see where they stand? Um, or do you just have like one-on-ones with your low performers? How do you um, how do you disseminate this information to the providers? And how do they get to compete with each other? Because I've always found in my in um, my experience that if you can set up a healthy competition between providers on who's better, uh, <laughs> who's more engaged, they, it kind of drives more engagement from other providers, from your lower performing providers. They don't, nobody wants to be at the bottom of the list. <laughs> yeah, definitely Maria. So we do uh, both as you had described. So we do send um, the performance depending upon the program, but for most of our programs, we do send performance where providers are able to see um, others and, and where kind of that lies. And in other cases, we send overall um, metrics in regards to perhaps our risk unit. So it might not be at the provider level. Um, some might be at a risk unit level or at a practice level. We do though have pockets where we share that um, across the board. So that way they do see how they're performing against others. We also do hone in on specific areas that we need to. So if it's a practice and we have a provider champion meeting coming up for that practice, we may go ahead and bring up that topic at that time. If it is a product that we're also trying to utilize and we're looking at engagement rates and really want to understand why isn't it being used in the way it needs to, we might go to a specific uh, 
provider meeting uh, where we can discuss that and get additional feedback, understand barriers. And from that, we might understand that, oh, okay, we need one-on-one -on -one sessions. So I think there's also a little bit of agility in it of we do show performance, um, but we also need that feedback loop to see if the way that we're showing performance or reviewing performance is actually, again, kind of getting through the transparency or importance of the initiative, as well as driving the results we want to see. That's great. It, it's really interesting. Um, lis listening to both of you talk about this, it reminds me a lot of, I think, honestly, a lot of similar things that we would have talked about as our lessons learned from quality programs, like as early as meaningful use, where we also talked about the role of physician champions. Uh, we talked about streamlining provider workflows and how can we use technology for that. And we talked a lot about measuring in that feedback loop and doing those early days of PDSA cycles to understand what's clicking, what's not. And Victoria, you know, you you touched on this a bit, but I'm I, I'm willing to bet that the PDSAs are led to a lot of what you talked about in terms of some of the variation across your network where you know that these aren't necessarily one size fits all. Um, they might be in some cases for singleton organizations that are running one EHR and even there, you know, you'll probably start to see some variation by specialty, et cetera. But especially as we see accountable care organizations, clinically integrated networks really expand in many cases, looking you know across states, across multiple health systems with their own histories, their own tools, processes, et cetera. Um, I suspect that those learnings throughout the rollout are really key in landing in a spot where you've got both you know a core sort of heart and spine of the program that works well but also the ability to make adjustments in order to make it work for each part of your organization. Yeah, Anna, that's that's exactly correct. I mean, we do have anytime we stand up uh, any program, whether it's we do, whether it's the pilot or the program when we're expanding, we don't uh, cut short, if you will, those feedback loops. So we still ensure that even though it's the same program, the same workflow, that we give the same program overview, that we have the same type of touch base or follow-ups with them, because each practice, although we try to standardize wherever possible, may have a different barrier. And we can think of what we can think of, but we obviously also don't know what we don't know. And if they are in the practice every day and working with this, they really are, their insights are very, important to be able to do that. So we ensure that we continually have um, the feedback loops, as you had mentioned, in order to continue to, to drive that. Mm -hmm. One other angle that I'm curious about, you know, because we talked about sort of what, what works for different providers, but I'm also curious about what works for different populations. And this is something that I've seen some organizations tackle, you know, if you if you look, for instance, at a, at a large national health plan, pick your favorite, you likely find completely separate and totally unrelated um, documentation programs for Medicare versus commercial versus Medicaid. Um, and we don't do that on the health system side in most cases because uh, our providers don't like to check a patient's ID card before deciding what workflow to follow and which questions to ask. They want to treat the patient in front of them, and that's spot on. But we also have the realities of the fact that these are these are different insurance programs, and in many cases, they're different populations that face different barriers that engage in different rates, et cetera. And I'm curious about how you've thought about modulating the program to account for differences in coverage as well as other population segments. Yeah, so we very much take into account what you had just outlined that the providers really want to take care of the patient. And so they're not necessarily going to look at whether they're Medicare or MassHealth, Blue Cross, Harvard Pilgrim, you know, wh whichever insurer you may have um, in line, just kind of fill that in. So we do try to think of it if we can do it across the board. Certainly there's considerations in that, especially um, being an ACO and thinking about, is it going to have the impact uh, contractually maybe that you, you need to have or thinking about uh, from the clinical side, is it also going to streamline and have that continual impact? So really trying to think of the question of is implementing this 
is there any negative impacts, if you will, if we implement this, you know, across the board in the same way? And is it maybe scale, right? Are there too many patients in one particular population that you can't do that? Is it perhaps that specific populations are more sick than others and need more care? Mm -hmm. So I think it's really the piece of we try to do it across the board and very much be mindful that the providers typically from what I've heard historically and up till today with all my prior experience is in regards to taking care of that patient. And so definitely coming across the question on can it be standard and do we need to go ahead and um, have subgroups. And if we don't, then I think it's best to, to not do that, especially if you're trying to teach a specific um, documentation angle or anything like that. It's it's harder when you start to layer on additional requirements. Like I'll give an example um, in regards to, so if we say, okay, we need you to um, have the specificity for depression, if that's the case, right? And if the medical decision-making does require, right, they do as um, clinicians determine that that is appropriate. And that's what I wanna stress, appropriate. Yeah. Um, and so if they have that, that it's appropriate and they go ahead and denote that specificity, it becomes much more difficult when you start to get to a lot of different nuances in that, right? Is it remission? Is it full remission? Is it, right? And all of the different pieces in there. And so imagine trying to train on depression, all the different pieces with depression, and then you say, okay, we only want you to do this for Medicare. Like it, it just, it adds a lot more layers and a lot more complexity. And as I mentioned, I think with some things like take free visit planning or other, I, like you may have to make those determinations based off a of scale. But I think that question needs to always be in the planning phase. Which populations are we doing this for? Which, or which populations can we do this for, right? And is that feasible? And can we move forward with that? Because there's a lot of considerations to have into play if that's not the case. And the other thing is about with the training part that you were just touching on is the, the requirements for documentation are so dynamic. They change every, they could change every year, right? So you're gonna mm -hmm. teach providers mm -hmm. how to document something specifically for, you know, if you were to train by program, which is like you said, is almost impossible. The next year, it may be something totally different, you know? And so the training changes and now you're taking their time again to train them up, to train them on something that's totally new. And that just happens with regular documentation. I mean, that changes, you know, it's dynamic as well. But if you are so specific about your training, you're, you're going to be chasing your training tail all the time. It's a great point. And it also reminds us that these aren't programs that you put in place once and then it's this, this isn't a set it and forget it. It's something that, you know, inherently requires uh, a lot of modulation. And there's a couple of questions in the Q and A that sort of tag along this theme that I want to hit on here. Um, Victoria, you know, you, you talked about some of the reporting that your group is doing um, and there's, also a great question here that kind of asks, you know, our organization struggles to get consistent results from the coding teams and how do you ensure that these codes are being captured correctly? And one of the things that I'd love to hear about from, from both of you guys is, you know, examples, best practices. What do you do when you get that dashboard? You know, what are, what are the metrics that light up for you? How do you follow up on those? How do you actually drive those improvement cycles? So I, I can, um, take a step at that first and then Maria love your thoughts as well. I think it depends, um, right? I don't think there's a one size fits all of, hey, I got this dashboard and this is what, what works. I think it's when you get those metrics or when you have key KPIs and you're able to look at them, I think you can understand if you need to dig deeper. And I think you can understand if it's a across the board issue or if it's a practice issue or a provider issue. And I think how you'd follow up on those would be different. So in regards to if you work closely with your coding teams or your compliance teams and, and they let you know, hey, they, they didn't do so well with their you know HCC audit last time and here's what we saw, then you might be able to say, okay, well, I know that we have most open gaps in 
depression, severe obesity, and diabetes areas um, with all the different diabetes diagnoses. And you may be able to say, this looks like it's across the board. So you may want to implement a strategy around that that's more at that macro level um, and not that you want to always chase your training tail, but do some type of training around it or awareness around it. And then on the flip side, you may find out that, oh, we have a single practice driver or provider driver to actually impact that specific. And so if you look at something to say, okay, there's a lot in the space of severe obesity, but when I unpack this, it's actually one provider uh, who isn't documenting it. And maybe you find out that the provider isn't comfortable documenting that. Uh, and unless you took the, and perhaps they'd welcome that in a you know training and speak up, but perhaps they don't. And so I think what it really is, Anna, is focusing on what are you trying to get from the metrics, right? Not just to put numbers up, to put numbers up, but what is that actionable stuff you take from that? And at what level do you need to actually intervene? And Maria, I'd love your thoughts on that. Well. Yeah, I think that the internal um, coding audits for education purposes are essential. Like you have to have uh, some system set up where you're actually reviewing the coding um, so that you can see um, before it actually comes to becomes an issue on an external audit, you know, an internal audit to see where are the deficiencies in the coding? Are we coding history ofs as currents? And and do do we need to do you know internal education for everyone on coding practices? Um, again, education is is always important, whether it's provider education for documentation or coding it. Uh, education for the coding. Yeah, and I'll mention too, um, we see some questions here in relation to kind of the different um, models of, of the training and what the programs look like. So we do a couple different things that I can touch on there in regards to we, as I mentioned and alluded to earlier, we do offer provider trainings. The provider trainings focus on the documentation and in regards to what specific conditions um, need to be addressed or what might be the toughest areas, either that we find out anecdotally by providers that need more awareness around them um, or understanding. Maybe it's actually a new HCC um, diagnosis as well. And so we, we would train on that. We identify it based upon as I just mentioned, any anecdotal feedback, but also through uh, our dashboards in regards to what conditions we may need to focus on. So we kind of do a two-pronged approach of having both your qualitative and uh, quantitative um, analysis to be able to drive those agendas. We do also offer CME credit for our providers for those to try to also attract um, participation um, and engagement in that space. So for those particular trainings, we have offered that. And then we have the application trainings and we have a fair amount of applications right now. Um, when I say applications, I mean EMRs. And so with that, we actually have some different point of care solutions depending upon which application you're on. And so that might be one of those strategies where if it's across the board, we offer it at a higher level or integrate it into existing meetings. But if it's a few practices, then typically we would go to um, a, a meeting sometimes they're called pod meetings but essentially a group of specific practices that meet together to be able to disperse that information and that's really on the application side so that way they know here's what i can do at point of care or here's where that lives and i need to go look for it or that's what that means and being able to work through that so we do all of those specific trainings and then we also have as i mentioned earlier application specific trainings on um, Arcadia side as well. So we actually do a quarterly Arcadia training on all of the risk information and all the risk workflows that we have inside Arcadia. Those are mainly attended by our risk units um, or provider organizations and folks that utilize that tool to help with their programs and with the collaborative efforts that we have. And we offer that quarterly for refreshers. We also offer it quarterly in case there's any new staff or other folks that need to be involved. So we have really an application side of the house, 
Um, and then we have a provider side of the house and how we try to target. And we also try to, uh, last item on that is we also try to align wherever it makes sense. So if there's another group that has a um, meeting, such as we have in one of the areas of our network, we have a team that performs a monthly meeting for providers um, around coding. And so we partnered with them to get onto their agenda for this year in order to be able to go over, you know, specific functionality or key highlighted areas that we'll have monthly. So I know that was a lot packed in there, um, but hopefully that addressed the question in regards to how we um, currently navigate uh, some trainings. And I did leave off a couple other details, but I'll, I'll start mm -hmm. there. Victoria, that's great. Um, one other piece that we, so we've we've talked a lot here around the provider engagement because we know that that's one of the uphill battles and it's in many cases like a very a very broad battlefield, let's put it that way. Um, we'll move off the war analogies in a hot second here. Would love to talk a little bit about the CDI team and there's, you know, there's questions here and ones that, you know, that we've heard a lot of over the years around you know, how do you think how do you think about the makeup of this team in terms of nurses and certified coders? How do you think about sizing this team? You know, would love to hear, Victoria, what you've done here and Maria, what you've seen be successful as well, as well as general guidelines and best practices for organizations that are starting to think in the investment of building this out as a function. Yeah, definitely. So I love Maria's thoughts uh, across the board. I'll give some additional thoughts in regards to our network. So we do have members of our CDI team at our performance network level. Uh, we also have teams that we collaborate very heavily with, whether it's in our risk unit space or whether it's in a specific pocket within our organization. So I think there's a mixture of both. There are coders um, within there. We're also thinking of how um, we integrate additional clinical um, folks in, in that space as well. We do always have clinical oversight regardless. We always partner with medical directors and uh, internally we also partner with our chief clinical officer in order to drive any clinical decisions um, and be able to have that advisory in regards to the clinical aspect. So I think having that clinical piece you need, whether you have them on staff or not, you need a clinical partnership, especially because there's a lot of clinical criteria you need to run through. I would say that I'm interested to hear how all of you are set up, but um, I, I would say that there's still um, some moving pieces there. Um, and we do have a lot of programs um, that we run. And so there also is elements of program and project oversight that also need to be taken in account in order to run these programs, maintain them, and then optimize. When I was um, in the CDI world, I um, had a team of all different people, um, coders, nurses, respiratory therapists. I just, the, uh, to be a good CDI specialist, it's more about um, characteristics than it is about title, right? It's, are you comfortable having conversations with providers is one thing that um, I think should be at top, the top of the list. Like if you're someone who's intimidated by providers, CDI is not the industry for you. Um, even if it's, you know, if it's just documented communication, you can't be intimidated by that because you're asking these questions. Um, and you have to be able to have the conversation or the back and forth with a provider and feel comfortable about having that. Um, so it's more to me about, yes, you need to have clinical knowledge. You need, you need to be able to function where, uh, where um, you can read documentation and, and pick out what's missing, um, which is hard for some people to do. It's not as easy as it sounds. Um, so you need to have that type of uh, critical thinking skill. And then you need to be comfortable in being confident with your discussion and why you asked a question if you're sending a query and not just, oh, because the paper says if it's depression, I should ask more questions about depression. A provider may come at you like, why are you asking me this? And you need to be able to um, say why. 
So I think it's more about personality traits or characteristics and as well as um, having some, you know, having the clinical knowledge, but you have to be able, you cannot be a um, someone who's easily intimidated or shy in the CDI world. It's mm-hmm. a great point. Uh, let me throw probably a last question out there as I want to be conscious of everyone's time. Um, We've talked a ton here today uh, about what we do when the patient comes in and how we make sure that all the right information is lined up for the provider, that everything's, you know, buckled up at the end of the visit and that all the right documentation is in place. But we know that part of the battle with risk adjustment is getting the patient through the door in the first place because a patient you're not seeing is a patient that you're definitely not capturing the right information around. So I'd love to hear, you know, a little bit of your thoughts, um, especially as we think about, you know, trends with patient disengagement from primary care during COVID, um, all of the social determinant of health oriented barriers um, to patients engaging in care, how you think about activating patients, you know, how you go about patient stratification and engagement in a way that supports risk adjustment tactics, as well as the broader work of the organization. Yeah, I think patient activation, I agree with you, Anna, is, is very important. And that is actually one of, um, if we kind of tie that back to the metrics, that is one piece that we like to look at and to understand our patients getting seen, right? Because ultimately, whether risk adjustment or not, we want our patients to be seen and we want our patients to be taken care of. So I do think that from that angle, there's a couple different things that we do in this space. So I know starting actually this year, we did integrate um, and we'll be starting outreach um, from text campaigns in mm-hmm. in our model for outreach. And so we've historically done a lot of campaigns around quality and we will be including some risk campaigns. So really excited about that space and what that brings. We also did develop um, a workflow in regards to how to identify patients and then outreach uh, for patients as well. And understanding that if we do need to stratify, although we may not want to stratify, if we do need to stratify, typically we do look at the open um, risk adjustment levels and may look at what the highest um, open or suggested value is there in order to, to stratify. The other thing with stratification is looking at what other open gaps they may have. So again, partnering with you know quality teams or other areas to say, okay, they might have you know an open risk gap of three, um, and they have no quality gaps, or they might have an open risk gap of three and have five open quality gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, depending upon what that might be, looking at that, but essentially the crux of it is really trying to leverage technology pieces. We're able consolidate lists. We're able and then being able to make sure folks have the right information on how to perform the workflow to identify those patients and make those calls if they're able to. Um, This was a great discussion and gosh, the level of detail that you went into, Victoria, was fantastic. Maria, your background is incredible to give color to this conversation. And Anna, as always, thank you for, for moderating this session and bringing your expertise to it as well. I just have one last question for all of you. When we ran the poll earlier about who, um, how, how well people's risk adjustment programs were going, nobody said it's perfect. <laughs> we're really happy with the results. Everybody was like, well, we're doing okay, or we could be doing better. Um, you know, we, we have we have data, but, but we don't know what to do with it. And I just want to get your quick response what is like the one thing that people can focus on now that will help them, um, you know, incrementally increase their results, get better results, be happier with the results that they're getting in risk adjustment in the next, let's say, three months? Uh, Victoria, I'm going to start with you. Sure. So I would say that you need to understand your landscape and what your true drivers are in regards to why you may be in the place you're in. And I would start there unless you've already done that. But if you haven't, that's that's where I'd start. So that'd be my contribution there. Maria, how about you? 
Yeah, I agree with Victoria on that. Find what the root cause is. And I also think that it, it, provider engagement, if you it, you always can do better <laughs> with provide, mm-hmm. provider engagement. And if you get that provider engagement, it may help your, you know, may boost your confidence and your success of your program. And Anna, you're an expert on this as well. So I want to hear what you have to say as well. Just to wrap things up, put a tight little bow on it. I'm a data nerd, so I really wanted to go exactly where Victoria went. But the other piece that I'd call out, I think, is just asking, you know? Um, I, I think that it's it's easy for us in our roles to push a lot of process and to push a lot of technology and you know, it's very it's it's very rewarding for us to also look at the data and start to see the patterns emerge. Um, but I think uh, I think the the other side of it is putting out the question to providers, to the coders, to others in the organization, and say, "Hey, what's what's not working for you, and how can we support you more?" And I think that that can help identify any of the spots where we can do more training, we can improve the tools, and where we can help these teams work together more closely. Um, Maria raised the example earlier of how the coder queries a provider and you know how, how, how they bring their point of view and their informed um, perspective to that conversation with the provider. Um, there's there's a lot more lessons to be learned around how these teams collaborate with each other to drive the greatest results. And that's something that we can see to an extent in the data, but that we also got to hear from the actual folks doing the work. Amazing. Well, once again, Victoria, Maria, Anna, thank you so much for your expertise today. This was great. And for all of you who are still tuned in, thank you for asking good questions. I know we didn't get to every single last question. Uh, for those that we didn't answer, I'll disseminate those with the team here. Maybe we can get you some responses on those additional uh, questions that are lingering. Um, and with that, I just want to thank you. We have an, a webinar again next month on SDOH, Social Determinants of Health. I would encourage you to sign up now, uh, get prepared, put it on the calendar. It's going to be a really good discussion about data specifically, data around those social determinants of health and how to use it. Um, and then you can also find additional resources in the related content tab at the bottom of the screen. We have our uh, second season of the schema. It's a really solid video series with top leaders in healthcare. Check that out. Get some more information about Beth Israel Leahy Health Performance Network. We've linked to their site and some additional information about what they're doing on risk adjustment. And then we have some additional risk adjustment resources and product information from Arcadia. Check all of those out. The recording of this session is gonna be available shortly and sent via email. And once again, we're gonna see you next week, next month on uh, the next webinar, SDOH data, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Thanks everyone here and uh, till next time.